comes out of the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So if you have your Bibles, please meet me in the book of Ephesians. The text reads like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of the last century, someone made a prediction. He said, the 20th century has been the age of the self. But my prediction is that the age of the self will give way to the age of astronomy. The world, the world of the self, he said, is small. And since the likelihood is that the mass of humanity will not give heed to God, it will have to find a better substitute than the self. And that substitute might be astronomy. Why? Well, because the universe is big. In fact, before the 1990s, when that prediction was made, we were told that there might be one million other galaxies in the universe. And then in the 90s, that number was scaled up to 50 billion with a B. And today, that number has been scaled up again to 100 billion other galaxies in the universe, which tells me no one has a clue when it comes to the universe. But the point of that prediction was this, the self is too small. We need something bigger. We begin a series in the book of Ephesians today, and I am convinced as are many others, that the point of the letter of Ephesians is this. The church is God's new creation. Designed in eternity, bought at Calvary, displayed in community, the church is God's brand spanking new creation. And when the church is all that it was predestined to be, it is the most glorious entity in creation because it is God's new creation. More glorious, more wonderful than the 100 billion stars in our galaxy. More glorious, more wonderful than the supposed 100 billion other galaxies in the universe. Those things are part of God's first creation. But the church is God's new creation in Jesus Christ. Now church, let me say this. The decision to start the book of Ephesians today was really hard for me the past week. And it was difficult for me because I know how consoled many of you were, many of you been, as we journey through the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is a book for broken hearts. And this past week, I had, I had that saying ringing in my ears, if you preach to broken hearts, you will never lack 
a congregation. And so I was tempted to linger for our sake. But you know, Ephesians is a book for broken hearts too. Because whereas Ruth consoles us, Ephesians shows us what and who we really are as members of the church of Jesus Christ. That regardless of the the hurt in your home, regardless of the tragedies in your family, amid the chronic physical pain that you deal with every day, God has made the church glorious in Christ. And what that means is you are part of something vastly and infinitely more glorious than yourself. That's an encouragement for broken hearts. And so if you sat here today thinking to yourself, Hugh, I, I can't process the enormity of Ephesians today. I just need you to tell me that God is with me in my hurt and he is working all things together for my good. Believe me when I say Ephesians will be worth the work. Because yes, we need consolation. We also need revelation. We need the revelation of what God has made us as the church of Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Very quickly, you remember the church in Ephesus was birthed all the way back in Acts chapter 19. Paul was on his third missionary journey. Ephesus, you remember, was a a wealthy uh, city in the province of Asia. It was steeped in witchcraft. It was covered in the occult. But Paul preached Jesus Christ and him crucified, buried, risen, and ascended with demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And the gospel made both disciples and enemies. He spent a total of two years and three months in Ephesus, and he probably wrote this letter in 62 AD as a prisoner in Rome. And he wanted to assure those on the receiving end of his letter that despite his absence, despite the lack of his personal ministry among them, they had been swept up into something infinitely more wonderful than than themselves, infinitely more glorious than their drop-dead gorgeous wealthy city in Ephesus, but into the church of the living God, bought at the cost of the blood of Christ. And what was true for them is true also for us. And that's an encouragement for the depressed, isn't it? That's a breath of fresh air for the discouraged. That's a a solid rock on which the despairing can stand. Ephesians will be worth our time. So join me now as we we look at the first two verses of Ephesians chapter 1 today. We see first the twofold authority of the author. The twofold authority of the author. Look at verse 1a. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Before Paul teaches the church about the church, he provides his credentials for the church. They knew Paul, this author, but this was no 
ordinary letter. As an apostle of Christ Jesus, when Paul wrote, God wrote. And the word apostle means sent one. And it's true that some were attributed and given that title in, in addition to the 12 and in addition to the Apostle Paul as well. But the 12 and the Apostle Paul had been given a unique authority by the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember it was the 12 minus Judas who had been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to turn the world upside down. And the Apostle Paul had been given that same commission as well. Remember, Paul used to be Saul. And in Acts chapter 9, Saul was on his way to arrest the Christians in Damascus, but he himself found himself arrested on the way. He was leading the charge to Damascus, but he entered Damascus as one who himself had to be led by others. He approached Damascus to, to demolish and to decimate and to destroy those belonging to Jesus. But he arrived as one whose pride had been decimated, destroyed, and demolished. Why? What could possibly have explained that? Well, he met Jesus. In a moment, a light flashed from heaven. And the brilliance of that light fried his eyeballs in their sockets. And Jesus spoke to him. And Jesus turned his world upside down so that he would go and turn the world upside down too in the preaching of the gospel. Paul was Jesus' chosen instrument to carry his name to the Gentiles and to the kings and to the children of Israel. Such that even this church today is part of the legacy of the authority of the apostle Paul. Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus. But then he tells us here, by the will of God. That's where his authority came from. An apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now, how on earth could that have been true? How could, how could it have been God's will to turn Saul of Tarsus into Paul, the apostle. Of all the men in the world to pick for that role, why the man whose hands were dripping with the blood of Christians? Well, Paul answers that question, doesn't he, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, when he writes, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God chose me and God appointed me and God gave me a twofold authority in the church, Paul says, to settle it once and for all that God can save anyone and use anyone to do 
anything for his praise and glory in the world. If he could save and use me, Paul says, then he can save and use you too. And the more unlikely the candidate, the greater the testimony to God. And if that was true for him, my question for you today is what might God be calling you to do today? God might be calling some of you to leave this country and to become a missionary to an unreached people and win an entire people group to faith in Jesus Christ. God might be calling others of you to to train for full-time Christian ministry. God might be calling others of you to pioneer an evangelistic ministry in Hoyt Lake that doesn't exist at the moment. This might make you smile, but when I started to preach at the grand old age of, of 19, there was a, a man in the, in the congregation who said, Hugh cannot preach for Toffee. He will never be a preacher. He will never pastor a church. And then fast forward three years, that church invited me to serve in a role similar to, to Michael's. And then fast forward another three years, that man said to me, how wrong you can be, not because I'm anything great, but because he could see a call of God on my life to open the word of God for the people of God. And if he can use Paul, he can use you. And if he can use me, he can use you as well. So listen, since Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and since when Paul wrote, God wrote, let us approach the book of Ephesians with a teachable mind and with a soft heart. Let's approach the book of Ephesians in the coming weeks with a posture that says, Lord, teach me. Conform my mind to your mind. Let me hate the things that you hate. Let me love the things that you love in the things that you've revealed. And friends, that won't always be easy because since the book of Ephesians comes to us from the mouth of God through the pen of Paul, there is much in this letter to humble our pride. We're going to hear the apostle Paul say, in love, he predestined us. And instead of us going, that that can't mean, predestined can't mean predestined, we should read those words and think, hmm, wow, teach me, Lord. And we're going to hear the Apostle Paul say things like this, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, which is convicting to me because I fail at that. He's going to say to the women, wives, submit to your husbands, which is anathema in 21st century Britain. But since these words come to us from the mouth of God, through the pen of Paul, let us tread very, very carefully. In Ephesians and in the 65 other books of the Bible, we are on holy ground.
So second, I want us to see the twofold identity of the readers. Verse 1b says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. The man whose authority was twofold writes to believers whose identity was twofold as well. They were saints and they were faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, when you do a a deep dive into the book of Ephesians, you learn very, very quickly that there is debate as to whether those words in Ephesus are original. That is, were written by the Apostle Paul. And the reason for that is because the earliest manuscripts that we have don't actually include those words. Scholars argue that they have to be original because without those words, the grammar and the syntax actually doesn't really make any sense. And so some speculate and argue as well that actually scribes intentionally missed out in Ephesus so that further later scribes could just write any place name in the place of Ephesus so that all the places, all the cities, all the towns could have apostolic instruction from the apostle Paul. But regardless of the immediate recipients, the most vital truth about their identities was that they were saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. Saints meaning holy ones. No longer sin-stained. No longer under the wrath of God. No longer condemned. Washed in the blood of Christ. And made holy, righteous, and spotless in his sight. For our sake, Paul wrote, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That was the church in Ephesus. And that's the church in Hoylake. And that's believers throughout the world, no matter where they live, no matter when they live. Here's how you become a, a saint in the, in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, number one, step number one, you have to be dead for at least five years. How, how great is that? Uh, step number two, after five years of being dead, church leaders have to deem you worthy after a very close inspection of your life. Uh, step number three, you have to have lived a life of heroic virtue. Step number four, you have to have performed miracles during your life. Step number five, you have to have answered someone else's prayer for a miracle in their life as well. But martyrs only have to answer one prayer for a miracle. In the Bible, here's how you become a saint. You get saved. You turn from sin. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who do that, God declares them righteous, holy, above reproach, pure, spotless, welcome, accepted in his presence. So listen, I know how frustrated many of you feel. I know you're not where you want to be in your walk with Jesus Christ. I know your struggle against sin makes you sometimes want to throw in the towel and just bail on Jesus all together. 
I know you're not as compassionate as you want to be, as tender-hearted as you want to be, as loving as you want to be. I know you want more self-control in your life. I know you want more fire in your prayer life or a prayer life to start with. But if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a saint in his sight. And when God looks at you, he sees his own face shining back at him because you wear the righteousness of Christ. And when one day you pass through those gates of pearly splendor and you look up and see wall-to-wall holiness, you will look down and you will find that you belong there because your robes have been washed by the blood of Christ. Paul's readers were saints and they were faithful in Christ Jesus. That is, they had faith in Christ and they were loyal to Christ. So friends, I want, us to, I want to give us this challenge today. During our time in Ephesians, why don't we ask God to use this book to align our lives, our speech, our conduct, our, and our thoughts with our identities in Christ Jesus? Why don't we ask him to ensure that our lives become more and more worthy of the gospel since we've been made righteous through the gospel? That our practical lives would correspond to our real identities in Jesus. You see, if HEC's greatest need is my holiness, which it is, by the way, then Hoylake's greatest need is your holiness. And therefore, the call in our lives is for our conduct to correspond with our identities in Jesus. I wonder if any of you have ever heard of a woman called Hetty Green. Hetty Green went down in history when she died in 1916 as, quote, America's greatest miser. When she died, she had $100 million in the bank. She was way up there in banking. And yet she refused to pay to heat up her breakfast cereal in the morning because she didn't want to pay the bill. Her son had to have his leg amputated because she refused to pay for the operation on his leg that he needed. And she wore only one dress that she wore until it was threadbare and literally fell off her body. She died of an attack of apoplexy that she brought on herself while arguing with someone about whether they should drink skimmed milk or not because it was more expensive than ordinary milk. She was loaded and she lived like a pauper. If the righteousness of Jesus Christ is ours, then why don't we live out what belongs to us? as believers? Why don't we ask God in our own 
times of prayer and on Tuesday night and on Friday morning for God to use this book to conform our behavior to our identities in Jesus. Thirdly and lastly, I want us to see the twofold blessing to the church. Look at verse two. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? Well, grace is God's unmerited favor to those who are in Jesus. And the peace that Paul writes of here is the experience that's ours when God goes from being against us in our sin to being for us in Christ. And all believers have this grace and peace, but if your heart is anything like my heart, it has holes. And so you need a, a top-up of grace and peace every day and every hour of the day as well. It's interesting, someone asked the famous evangelist D.L. Moody, have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? And Moody replied, yes, but I leak. And you all know exactly what he means, don't you? And so Paul's heart for the Ephesian church and my heart for the Hoylakian church is that this letter would top up our grace and peace in Christ. Where can we get that from? Well, Paul tells us here, doesn't he? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, they give to us the experience of grace and peace through the channel of his word. And so we need to view Ephesians as a deep, deep well full of the cool water of grace and peace to us. That as we journey through this wilderness world to the Canaan above, we would come to this well over and over and over again and top up our souls. There's so much in the world to dehydrate us, isn't there? That there's our indwelling sin and remaining corruption within our hearts. There are those very, very difficult colleagues that perhaps ostracize you on account of your faith in Jesus. There's that chronic pain that you carry around. There's that never-ending to-do list. There are those 15 plates that you have to keep spinning in the air every day, and they drain your experience of grace and peace in Jesus, don't they? And you can always tell how full or how empty you are by how easy it is for you to show grace and peace to other people. And if your tank has holes like mine, then let me encourage you with this. There is a well in every passage of the book of Ephesians. So come with me to the well every Sunday. Please don't settle for the live stream. I know some of us have to settle for the live stream because we're too unwell and I fully get that. But if you can, come and plunge your face into the well every Lord's Day. Don't settle for watching Bake Off on the screen when you could be eating in the tent. Maybe you've heard five sermon series through the book of Ephesians. 
and you're sat there today saying to yourself, Hugh, I've heard it all before. There's nothing you can say that I've never heard. But you know what? I'm personally fine with drinking out of the same tap every day because it gives to me what I need. And so don't despise the well of Ephesians because you've drunk from it before. Friend, you are not in heaven yet. And you need this well, lest you die of thirst on the way. But if perhaps you're here today and you're not even a, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you would say, I've, not, I've never known any of this twofold authority over me in my life. I've never known these, these, this twofold identity. I've never experienced these twofold blessings of grace and peace before. Friend, grace and peace can be yours today because Jesus Christ gives them to all who come to him. And Jesus can give to you the unmerited favor of God because he bore the full weight of the judgment of God on the cross for sinners. And he can give to you the peace that comes when God is for you because on the cross, God was against him and set his face against him so that his smile can be on you and can be on me at the cross. Grace and peace in abundance today through repentance and faith in Christ. That's a well to drink at. And that's the gospel that the letter of Ephesians proclaims. And that's the gospel that our souls will be watered with every Lord's day that we spend in this Holy Spirit-inspired letter. Friend, I need it. And you need it as well. Amen. 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 Well, I want to pray for us now, and then we're going to stand and sing before I close our time together. But Father, we do thank you and praise you that your word, all 66 books, and including this one, is a deep, deep well. And we can draw deeply.